You're listening to City Church. But beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, this is kind of the, the, the apex of God's creation. He's created humanity, the world, all the creatures, the heavens, and God looks at his creation. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now jumping to Genesis, the third chapter, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. First instance of blame in humanity. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If your starting point for God's story is Genesis 3, it's kind of like walking in in the middle of a conversation and trying to figure out where this thing is going. Have you ever started a movie in the middle of it, didn't know where it began, not sure where it was heading, you stuck around, hopefully that resolution would come, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. For me, Over this last year, I've been reflecting and realizing that personally, my starting point in God's story was Genesis 3. My framework was, we're fallen. The world is in decay. This is the starting point. This is where God meets humanity. But the truth is that the story of God begins in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, we see God creating everything that we see. And after everything that he creates, he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then finally in verse 31, after he creates humanity, he says, no, this is very good. And so the starting point of God's story is much different than Genesis 3. And it connotes and it speaks of a totally different view and intention that God had for the world, for humanity, for everything we see And so the Bible doesn't begin with the fall, begins with creation, God creating the world with greater intentions than what we see. And the Hebrew prophets give us this word that describes God's heart for creation. This word is shalom. Shalom. Can you say shalom with me? 
Shalom. I'm a preacher built for response. And so if you, if you came in here wanting to be quiet, please turn something on. We got to talk to each other. Shalom. If you go to any Jewish neighborhood, I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, I'm ne- I grew up near Borough Park. If you go to any Jewish neighborhood today, you, can, you will still hear Jews greet each other and say, Shalom. It's a powerful word that communicates God's intention, and it has a ton of definitions. I want to give you three ways of understanding it. First, shalom connotes this idea of peace. But it's not the kind of peace of the absence of conflict, but it's a peace that speaks of wholeness. Another way of thinking of shalom is nothing missing or nothing broken. God intended the world that nothing would be missing Nothing would be broken, that we would be whole. Another way of understanding it is flourishing. When God created the world, the world that he said is good, 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 very good, he created it with the intention, with the capacity that if it was stewarded correctly, it would flourish. Human relationships would flourish. Creation would flourish. Everything that he put in seed form would flourish. He created it for shalom. And even in the midst of our broken world, We have glimpses of shalom. Put up some images. For some, eating is shalom. Some of you looking at me say, Chris, you really enjoy shalom um, based on your size. But yes, for some people, have you ever had a horrible day? Your boss, conflict, whatever, and you have a good meal. And for those moments... Everything is good. The world just fades away. All the troubles are gone. Shalom, you go to the next slide. Um, This blew me away. In New York, they had a week where they were celebrating Shake Shack in Manhattan. And um, so they had all these big chefs. And every day of the week, they were cooking their own spin of Shake Shack burgers. We had a guy in our church that waited five hours in a line for a burger. I said, good Lord, what, what, how do you do that? Um, waiting for five hours. And I said, was it worth it? I mean, if I'm waiting five hours for a burger, I want it to solve life's problems. You know, like, I just, oh, man, everything's good. You know, just my childhood is good. You know, like it. And he said, it was great. I said, really? He said, oh, the flavor notes. And he's a foodie. You know, like I discovered there's these people that exist among us, foodies. You know, like that, they, you know, oh, there was great mint flavor, you know, like it just, a food critic. And so he loved it. And I wanted to mock and, but I realized, I said, you know, God created, he could have given us food that was just bland, that just keeps us alive. But he created food so that it would burst with flavor, so that we would have these moments and realize, wow, how good our creator is, that it would evoke worship to him. You go to the next slide. Maybe food is not your shalom. Maybe it's coffee. Can I get an amen? I'm not a Christian before my first cup of coffee. I don't know anything about Jesus, about the Bible. Just, I, I, I don't want my kids to talk to me before the first cup. It's not good. I'm glad it's a socially accepted drug. Um, at the moment I start breaking into people's homes to support this habit, then I know it's not a good thing. But thus far, we're good. Maybe coffee is your shalom. Oh, you go to the next slide. Maybe it's not coffee. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's a vacation. Ooh. 
Some of you say, man, I wish I was there right now. What am I doing in New Haven? Vacation. You go to the next slide. This is actually uh, the resort where my wife and I spent our honeymoon. And so this place will always be wonderful. It's in in Cancun. And uh, it was great. It's like 13 restaurants on site. Uh, It was fantastic. You could have like steak with your steak. You know, like it was just, it was all you can eat, all-inclusive deal. It was a glorious time my honeymoon for many, many wonderful reasons, which we shall not get into. You can go to the next slide. Shalom, my kids. Any parents, uncles, aunts? Oh, these kids do something to my heart. That's Alexa. She's five, going on 30. And that's Luke. He's two, and he's a monster. He's bigger than, like, four-year-olds. Love them. You go to the next slide. My wife, I, I, I thank God. She's obviously blind. Otherwise, she wouldn't have picked me. Um, she's the joy of my life. She's just wonderful. They're shalom. Moments in the broken world where nothing's missing. Nothing's broken. Things are flourishing. The sad truth is, you go to the next slide. The sad truth is, that we live in a world that even though we have glimpses of shalom, of flourishing, nothing missing, nothing broken, peace, we live in a world that's affected by the fall, affected by sin, affected by human choices that dishonor and desecrate each other. You go to the next slide. The craziness of even vacations or your spot. I had a friend who went to one of the best resorts in Jamaica This is a picture of it. Those are armed guards. Armed guards at the beach. And he ignorantly said, uh, he went to the guards and he was wondering. He said, hey, is there like civil unrest or something? Is there something going on in the country that I don't know? And the guards were were laughing. They said, no, we're here to protect you. So what do you mean? He said, oh, the people outside of the resort, uh, the only reason they're not robbing you right now is because we're here. With M16s on the beach. We live in a world that paradise such as a beach, has to be protected by guards. There's beauty in the world, but people are dying of hunger. There's armed guards at resorts. Our own lives attest to the fact that shalom has been shattered. That things are not the way they were meant to be. We yearn for something different because we know things are not the way they were meant to be. Shalom has been shattered. It's been broken. The world, sadly, is not a place you and I can categorically describe as good, as peaceful, as nothing missing, nothing broken. That's not the world that you and I live in, and we can't just describe it like that. No matter how glib we want to be about it, no matter how hopeful we want to be about it, the fact is that we live in a world where shalom has been shattered, where there's brokenness, where there's sin, where there's pain, where there's despair, where outside of these walls there's people right now as we speak being raped, being abused, being oppressed. Right now as we speak There's corruption of mass scale all around us in governments and corporations throughout the world. Shalom has been shattered. 
It's one of the only doctrines of the Bible that can easily be empirically attested to. You see it all around. The shalom has been shattered. And it's tragic. But you don't even have to look outside of the world. Right here in this room, in your own soul, if you look deep inside, you can find moments of your own personal history where shalom had been shattered. Where you and I, we, to survive, we frame it out. We, we create a frame in our souls and say, this is all I'm going to focus on. I don't want to focus on the fact that I was abused. I don't want to focus on the fact that I did this thing to that person and I carry incredible shame because of it. I don't want to focus on the fact that I always need to be first and I will crush anybody that's in my way in order to validate myself through accomplishments and drives. We, we, we frame ourselves in such a way we don't want to be touched by the reality that shalom has been shattered. I grew up in the hood. I grew up around drugs. I grew up around gangs. And I thought those things were vile until God, by some miracle, I find myself in corporate boardrooms and I find myself with people of incredible wealth and I realize the disparity is not that big. These guys just do it with suits on. Shalom has been shattered in our hearts, in our souls. And the scriptures tell us why. God gives us a reason as to what caused this. And the answer is so simplistic, it offends our enlightened minds. And we want a sophisticated answer. But the Bible gives us the reason why, the simple reason why the world has been broken, why shalom has been shattered. And we find it in Genesis 3, verse 5. We're going to read that passage again. When Adam and Eve were tempted to disobey God, to commit treason and rebellion against God, this was the temptation that Satan offered them. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The original temptation, the act of sin that spun the world out of control, that shifted the order that God intended, it was more than just eating a fruit. The motive behind it, they were tempted to be their own God and to determine right from wrong independently from God. If you want to know the Bible's reason, Scripture tells us why everything is out of control, why everything is just off, the the, the brakes are off, and everything is spinning all around us. Even though we try to frame it away from us, and I don't want to focus on it, the fact is that things are out of control, shalom has been shattered, the Scriptures give us a reason, and that is that you and I gave in to the temptation to be our own God and to determine right from wrong independently from God. If you go back in your own history, whenever someone sinned against you, that was a moment when someone was trying to be their own God. That was a moment when they were trying to determine right from wrong, independently from God. But the truth is that you and I are not just victims 
of sin. We're perpetrators. We're not only sinned against, we sin against people. Whenever you and I sin against each other, that's a moment where I say, I'm going to be my own God. What I want, I'm going to control the situation. What I, my dictates are going to be the thing that calls the shots and drives this thing right from wrong. God says it's wrong, but you know what? I have a different view of that, and I'm going to determine that independently from God. God says I should love you. I should honor you. I should treat you with high regard of infinite worth because you're created in his image, but because I want to be my own God and determine right from wrong, independently from God, I will crush you. If it's to my gain, we will use each other if it's advantageous to each other. That's the heart of the fall. We want it to be our own gods and determine right from wrong independently from God. And it continues to play out wherever in this world, wherever you see brokenness, the lack of shalom. It reveals the, the presence of a God other than Jehovah. If you go to communities that are ravaged by drugs and violence, there's a God at work there other than Christ. If you go to corporate boardrooms and, and greed and, and, and just an, uh, an achievement ethos that will cause people in the name of achievement and success to crush other people, to disconnect from family and friends and to put themselves above others, that's a God that's at work, that's determining right from wrong, independently from God. It's everywhere. Whenever you see military coups and they're overthrowing governments, they're trying to be their own gods. Even, even it, the craziness of it is that even in our desires to do right, to do good, this desire to be our own gods is at work I was gripped. I was reading this book by uh, Andy Crouch called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And he tells of a story where he was meeting with one of the biggest uh, relief workers in all of India. And this guy was responsible for freeing countless children from slavery, modern-day slavery, as well as sex trafficking. The work that he was doing was amazing, freeing children. And they asked him, he said, what's your biggest fear? In this work, he said, my biggest fear is that one day in the future, we would come to replace the gods of these people oppressing them, and then they would come to put all their faith in us and never look to the true God. He knew that anything could become a God. Your family can become God. Good things can become God. Doing well for others can become God, where it becomes the center of our lives. It drives us. It controls us. Shalom has been shattered because of this. And the reason why it's difficult to determine that, the reason why it's so hard to put our finger on that, is because we blame. Did you notice in the beginning of the account of Genesis where we see what was the reaction, the response to sin? Whenever God confronted people with their sin, the first thing Adam does in verse 12, he said, the woman, you put me here. She gave me the fruit. He blamed her. 
Then God confronts Eve, what have you done? She blames the serpent. You know, that continues to be our cycle that we're in. Whenever there's a confrontation that, hey, you and I are responsible, are at work in destroying shalom, destroying God's intention for things to flourish and peace and nothing missing, nothing broken. Whenever we're confronted by that, say, not me. Somebody else's fault. Not me, I didn't do that. Blame. We continue to blame when we're confronted with our sin. It's our, it's our response to this day. Not us. So it's hard to see the root of brokenness in the world. It's hard to see that what's breaking the world continuously is the fact that we want to be our own gods. We, we, in essence, say, God, I got this. I don't need you. The created one knows better than the creator. I'm going to map out my own course, no matter what it is. Your right and your wrong are not going to be mine. Don't assume that. I am wise enough to choose my own moral path. That's at the heart of what continues to fracture the world. But we would never know it because we keep blaming things and other things. I was amazed at the fact that when I look at Scripture and say, what's at the heart of everything that's broken here? I was shocked to see that it wasn't multinational corporations. It wasn't Planned Parenthood. It wasn't the NRA. It wasn't the Republican National Convention. It wasn't all the actors that we typically assign blame for destroying the world. What was at the root of it was human beings wanting to be their own God and determine right from wrong independently from God. That's what broke the world. That's what shattered shalom. And that's what continues to do so. I love this quote by Adrian Rogers. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. In our hearts, even really good people can be pretty easily driven to do some pretty horrible things to themselves, to others. I want you to realize when the Bible talks about sin, I know that that fires all these different lights in your mind. If I could give you another way of understanding sin is anything that stops human flourishing. That could be good things. I'm very aware that my love for my kids can potentially stop their flourishing if I love them in a way that smothers them, overbearing. Anything that stops human flourishing. But I love this. The arc of Scripture, the story that God is telling us, doesn't end in the fall. Even in this, I love this, in, in this very passage, Jesus comes to us. The promise of Christ is uttered at humanity's lowest moment when we said no to God, when we said we're going to be our own gods, we're going to determine right from wrong, when we, we committed treason against God, where we're hiding from him because we're covered in shame and fear, God shows up looking for us, pursuing us, searching for us, 
You know, you hear people all the time, I found God. No, you didn't. He found you. You were oblivious to him. You were on your own course. You had no thought or recognition of abandoning your own godhood. No, you were on a path where you were going to determine right from wrong, independently from God, where you were going to call your own shots, where you affronted his holiness, and he came after you and after me, pursued them. He didn't come just to confront them, to tell them they sinned. He came to give them a promise. This promise is found in Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. And then he gets singular. He says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Within that language, when you dig it in in the original language, rabbinical scholars all attest that this is the first messianic promise where God promises, you have just fallen. You have rebelled against me. You have said, I'm unnecessary. Imagine for parents in the room and those that will be one day, imagine you loving a kid, investing in them, and, and, and just doing everything you can for them, and then all of a sudden they grow up and said, you're useless to me, I want nothing with you. How crushing, how devastating. That's what we did to God. That's what was our response in, in, in the heart of sin. And in the midst of that, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send a Savior. From the woman's lineage, her offspring, one will come. And when he comes, it says, he will crush your head to the serpent. And he tells the serpent, and you will strike his heel. He's saying, what, and when he comes, when Jesus does what he was intended to do when he came to this earth, he would crush the head of evil. He would announce a kingdom coming that would reverse the order that had been shattered. He would come and, and reassert the authority of humanity that was lost through sin, crushing evil. But in the process, his heel would be bruised. That connotes the idea that it was at great suffering and pain that we are redeemed. That Jesus came to reverse the order, to restore shalom. And he did so by receiving incredible pain. As Christians, our best estimation of the hideousness of sin is the incredible price it took to atone for it. His heel was bruised for you and I. The promise of Jesus. I had no intention of sharing my story. I wanted to keep this really theological and sermony give you some great truths and walk away. As I was praying this morning, I felt I was supposed to. And I, I'm hesitant to share it because it's, it's filled with a lot of pain. But I think it's relevant to, to, for you to understand that this idea of shalom, Jesus coming to restore shalom, is not something I learn in a book. It's something I experience firsthand. The reason why I can talk about this subject is simply this. I was born in a really broken situation. 
my mom, uh, she had me out of wedlock with a man that was married. And it, it, she came to this country and she was by herself and she ended up uh, falling in love with this guy and he pursued her quite a bit. And then uh, my sister was born before me. She's older. And that was horrible. He, he reacted pretty violently toward my mom, said, you messed my life up by having this kid beat her and said, that's it, we're done. Um, we're done. And then she thought it was over. She thought, man, my worst is I'm going to be able to raise this, this girl by myself. Uh, it's going to be difficult, but I'm done. Uh, what I did was shameful. I shouldn't have done this with this man. But sure enough, he pursued her. He pursued her aggressively. Um, he would show up at her job. He would break into her apartment because he had a turn in his mind. And he said, you know what? You screwed up my life. I'm not going to let you get off the hook that easily. And sure enough, he forced himself on her. And I came. And now the news of me, of her being pregnant with me, uh, he wasn't going to go through that again. The shame, the tension with his wife. And so he said, you're going to kill this baby. And he took her to the abortion clinic. And the first time she went, she came back and said, I did it. And he said, good. You got rid of it. Good. And then sure enough, weeks go by, he realizes, wait a second, you didn't. And he begins to beat her so that she would miscarriage. And she would, he would just wave at her stomach and swing, and she'd cover. Uh, so she goes again the second time. So you better do it. Comes home. I did it. I did it. Just waiting. He sees. No, you didn't. Beats her again. Finally, she goes a third time, determined to do it. She walks into the abortion clinic, and there was a, uh, somebody protesting in front of the abortion clinic. And they said, don't kill this baby. God has a plan for this child. And she broke down crying at that moment. And that afternoon, she got on a plane, went to Puerto Rico, gave birth to me there. And the craziness, when he found out he had a son, he was pretty elated. But shortly after that, six months later, he died. Died of liver disease. He was a crazy man. He used to go into trains in New York City and stick the whole train up. Uh, once the doors would shut, was involved in money laundering. I remember when I, uh, Father's Day was very painful for me. Because I didn't have a dad. I used to hate it in public school. They used to make us do cards for our fathers. I'd be like, I don't have one. So painful. And the pain of that drove me at a young age to find affirmation wherever I could find it, through violence, selling drugs, being in the street, uh, being with women. I didn't have a childhood. At the age of 10, I became sexually active. And your childhood is ruined at that moment where your innocence is completely lost. And, and rather than playing, your mind goes and shifts and starts thinking of things that you shouldn't think of at the age of 10. At the age of 14, this guy that's actually right here with me, Frankie, he came and we used to play basketball together. We went to the same junior high. And he became a Christian. I had no idea um, that he did. 
we had lost contact for a couple of weeks, and then we show up in the basketball court, and he's talking to me about Christianity, about Jesus. At that moment, I was smoking weed. Um, and so I said, man, I'm going to drive this Christian boy crazy. And so I was blowing smoke in his face. And like, tell me more about Jesus. I'm going to get this guy high. You know, and so that, and he just kept on taking short breaths and just telling me about Jesus. Say, hey, I'm going to pick you up to church. I'm going to bring you. I was like, sure, sure, sure. I'm like, he ain't coming. And uh, sure enough, Sunday morning, outside my window, I hear his raspy voice. Frankie has uh, we, an 80-year-old man's voice all his life. And uh, he's like, Chris! And I'm like, who the heck is calling me outside my window? It's Frankie. I went to church. And I kid you not, I walked in and I see people, much like you did this morning, with their hands raised, talking to God and realizing God was talking to them and they were having this beautiful exchange. I said, I've never seen anything like this. What? I saw people that I knew from my neighborhood that I haven't seen in a bit, see them in this building and now all of a sudden not wanting the things that they wanted, not wanting to destroy and hurt people. A total change had happened in their lives. I, it was a miracle. I, I'd never seen anything like it. I, my heart was gripped. I said, I want that. At that age, I realized I'm shattered. I'm broken. I looked all around. I saw all my friends. I realized I'm going to end up dead or in jail. That's, that's my only paths. And if I, if I stay alive outside of jail, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have kids with, with women that I can't support, that I can't be a father to, like many of my friends. But more than all that, I realized at that age, it be, the light began to go off. This is not how we were intended to live, killing each other for reputation or for wanting this thing that you have that I don't. This is not how we were intended to live for people to be abused and hurt and oppressed. We were intended for more. God had a bigger plan. I didn't know it. I didn't know what shalom meant, but I knew my heart yearned for something that I couldn't find anywhere else. And I thought it was just because where I grew up until I met people that had incredible upbringings, wonderful families, but yet yearned for something that this world couldn't offer. But they found it in Jesus. They found it in the one who was promised to bring shalom. And he today desires to restore shalom in your life. Maybe you're here today. Maybe your story is not as broken as mine. But in everybody's history, there's a moment where shalom is shattered. It's shattering. Or in everybody's history, if that's not the case, they realize the world is broken. And they're yearning for something that can restore the world to where it was supposed to be, and that is only found in Jesus. But even bigger than that, this morning as I came in, I saw all the volunteer teams, and they're setting up. They're here really, really early and doing all this great work, and I hear all the things about new campuses, and all that is with the intention that people that are living broken would come to know the one who restores shalom. Today, I want us to, I want to invite you to pray with me. Pray with me that your own life, if there's anything missing or broken, areas that are not flourishing, that you would invite the one who was promised to restore shalom 
But even bigger than that, I want us to pray for New Haven, for this community, for your neighborhood. Even in the best communities, you find gods other than Jehovah ruling and reigning. How great would it be if you and I could go and restore shalom, reconnect people to Jesus. If I could invite you, if you would, if you would, if you would rise to your feet with me, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to, and the worship team is going to help us to respond in song. But I want to pray for us. I want to pray with you that we would allow Jesus to restore shalom in us and through us. Father, we come to you now and we recognize that shalom has been broken, that your intention for the world to flourish and to be a place of peace for our lives to be marked by nothing missing or nothing broken, that that has been shattered And God, today, in this room, in all of our lives, there are moments that we can recollect where shalom was broken, where things were shattered. And God, we we may try to forget, we may try to work through it, but the truth is, we can't pull ourselves out of that muddy pit. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come into this room and to speak to every heart. God, there's people in this room that have been shattered by divorce people in this room that have been shattered by abuse, verbally, physically. God, so many of us are searching for meaning and affirmation in things that are fleeting when you offer something eternal and anchored. Oh God, if you would, if you're here, if 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 you feel comfortable, would you raise your hands before God? In the scriptures, the Bible talks about raising of hands. It's an outward sign of an inward posture where your heart is postured to look up. God, we raise our hands to you. We look to you, Jesus, the restorer of shalom, the one who would bring us back to the original intention. God, we ask you that you would come right now in this place and touch our very souls. God, it's been shattered. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come and infuse your healing love inside of us, God. The scars we ignore, the pain we suppress, Holy Spirit. The words we never heard that we long to hear, come, God, restore shalom. And we pray, God, not just for ourselves. We pray for New Haven. We pray for Bridgeport. We pray for the communities that you have us, God. Just all the things, all the suffering, all the pain, and even the good things that are replacing you, we pray you would help us to declare the one who can bring shalom, you, Jesus. We ask you this in Jesus' name. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.